We have huge overtime for the Cleveland riot. We have a discussion about what the word bailout means when you're talking about the Hilton Hotel. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with colleagues Laura Johnston and Jen Cahoon. Chris Wernowski is taking a couple of well-deserved days off. Let's get right to it. How much did Cleveland spend on overtime because of the May 30th riot and aftermath? This is a big number. It's bigger than I expected it would be, but I guess shouldn't be surprising given how how extensive the damage was. Laura Johnston, Frank Jackson explained what the cost was yesterday. What was it? Yes, it's more than $3 million, $3,066,151.68 to be exact. And most of that is for police, both for the demonstrations and rioting on May 30th and then the week after um, with all the extra security during the curfew. And there also is a lot of cleanup from the public works that does not include the cost of the burned out police cruisers. I find it a little bit hard to believe that that includes overtime from the police response to the protests, because one of the problems was we didn't see many police when the riots started to be, to go. You just didn't have a whole lot of officers downtown. I'm supposing that this is really from all the people they called in to quell the violence once it began. It took them a little bit to get their bearings, but by about 8 o'clock that night, they had the city shut down, the curfew began, and enough officers in town to bring order. Is that the supposition correct? I believe so. I don't think this was pre-planned overtime. I think this was in the moment, get here overtime. And then that whole week of curfews, think about it. we had National Guard here. We had the barricades. There were police that were checking people's IDs when they tried to drive into downtown Cleveland. So that was extra police presence. Um, the mayor talked to a very spaced out group in public auditorium. That's where this news came from. A spaced out group, meaning <laughs> that they couldn't follow what he was saying or spaced out, meaning they were socially distanced. <laughs> socially distant in public auditorium. And he was saying that the city expenditures through May are about $4.5 million greater than revenues. So, but he's saying that if the economy levels out, the city won't have to do layoffs. But I don't know if that $3 million has been factored in since that was that was technically June for the most of that curfew. So I don't know. Actually, I, the numbers were better than I thought they would be. He did. He's been figuring the a recession is coming. And right. so they, they do have a bunch of money socked away. And as long as they are able to continue collecting income taxes from all of us who are not working downtown anymore, but still have employers based there as they have been, it sounds like they they might be okay. The big peril is if the downtown workers who are now working from home uh, stop stop paying that money. Anyway, three three point one million for, oh, just for overtime. That doesn't include all of the the damage repairs and and the materials they use. That's a big number. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is the rate of positive tests? Positivity, the word is for the coronavirus in Ohio. This has been a frustrating number to get a hold of. We've been seeing a big surge of cases in Ohio for the past week, but we haven't really known. Is that because they're giving more tests or that more people are testing positive? Jane Cahoon yesterday brought some data that gets us closer to the answer, although I still feel frustrated that we don't have enough data. What did we learn? Yeah, I'm with you. Every time I try to analyze this, my head just starts to hurt. So we do know we have seen more cases lately, but that positivity figure that you referred to 
has really held pretty steady this month at about 4 or 5%. So for example, of more than 10,000 test results that we got on Monday, 483 were positive, and that, that was 5%. And it, it seems like, uh, according to some reporting that the Washington Post did, you know, as long as you're about 5% or below, that's that's not as alarming as, you know, the rates in some other states. You, you know, y- uh, yesterday, we had the largest single increase in daily cases around the country. So, you know, and, and a lot of that is in the South and in the West. And uh, we had we have a lot of higher positivity rates in, in other states, as I said, like Arizona and Florida. Texas is going Texas, crazy. So, yeah. so we've, we've talked about this every day this week, and I, I, you can imagine why. I mean, we had had a steady, steadily dropping number of, of cases each day. And then for the past week, we've been way up. But, but as Rich Exner reported, the number of tests has virtually doubled, really. And so if the positivity rate is steady and we're doing that many more tests, then that would seem to be a sign that we're not really seeing the surge in cases. We're seeing a, a, a detection of cases and hospitalizations remain steady. What troubled me, though, is Rich put into his story, we have no idea whether the people getting the tests are asymptomatic. If, if the ratio of people getting the tests is of asymptomatic to people who feel sick has changed. And that leaves us in the lurch. We don't know really to this day whether Ohio is seeing the surge as a result of reopening or it's just a product of testing. Do we have any hope of getting to that, to that data, to being certain as to whether we have a problem or not? Well, we're really hoping that the governor explains more of that today during his briefing. He promised he would have some more information on that. So I don't know, you know, I mean, testing before was limited to the sickest. So as you said, now we don't know that body of people being tested if they're experiencing a lot of symptoms or not. We, you know, there's just still so much we don't know as usual. Yeah. Yeah, it's a scary thing. And, you know, and I don't know how much the governor will get into it today because today's the day he's supposed to do his big education thing, which <laughs> a lot of people care about. Oh, Every yeah. parent and teacher is trying to figure out what to do. Laura had a <laughs> really funny, uh, I think it was a Facebook or an Instagram post from a teacher about, you know, all the things they have to do now. While This is Laura Johnston, like teaching, being like riding a, while you're riding a unicorn, while you're a hologram, like all of these off the wall things that teachers are supposed to be able to do. They feel like they have to be magicians to be able to, to manage it. Yeah. The, the, it seems very clear that the teachers are going to pay the biggest price when it comes to trying to figure out how to do this. And I know this cause I am married to one. You're listening to this week in the CLE is Cuyahoga County's proposal to spend $7.9 million on the downtown Hilton hotel, a bailout. I got to say, the fact that this is what this story has come down to from the county side, whether it's a bailout or a subsidy or something else, is kind of mind boggling. Because what the real gist of the story is, is the county is dipping into our tax dollars to the tune of at least $7.9 million and maybe more than $20 million to take care of a debt involving the Hilton Hotel. And, you know, they sent out a tweet attacking our reporting yesterday 
um, a tweet in which they said they own the hotel, which actually I, I now believe is not true. I believe the port actually owns the hotel and that the county made a deal with them back in 2014 to, to have them be the middleman that owned it. But, but Laura Johnson, I, I want to take, take people through what this is about, because having a debate about a word is silly. This is mm-hmm. about so much more than that. It's a significant chunk of change. So, so let's talk about the origins of this hotel. Back in the early part of the decade, finally, after years of trying, the county got what it needed to build a convention center. It was right. kind of with the dodge of the medical mart being the magic, the magic ticket, which you know many of us never believed and has proven to be untrue. <laughs> but Ed Fitzgerald, as that project was coming in for a landing, realized he had a good bit of money left over because of savings in the project. And he and Frank Jackson got together with a plan in advance of the Republican National Convention to build this hotel, right? So so what was the plan? The idea was that they 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 went to private developers. They said, we'd love to have this hotel, but they couldn't get enough interest to buying, uh, to building a, a downtown hotel. They just wanted to build parking on it. So the this county was the thought, site of the old county administration. The old county administration right. building, which had been built in the 50s. And the... Convention Center had been underway planned since 2007. So this hotel was like a late addition and they the sales tax was bringing in more money than they had projected. So they said, okay, we've got this money. Let's do something with it. Let's bring better, bigger conventions to Cleveland. We need a hotel to be able to do that. So they get together, they, they come up with this plan. Originally, the funding, they knew they had extra money, but they knew they would have to be creative. And it took about right. a year to get it together. And ultimately, they come up with this plan. They would use this big chunk of money that they had from the convention center. So that, right. that was money they had set aside. The, the debt service, the loans for that were already out there. There was already a way to pay them. Right. They also had to sell some bonds that they said would be based on the hotel tax to pay a chunk of the money. And then there were some other sources. So this is where the the loan payments, what the county calls debt service, comes right. in, and that's the basis of this seven point nine million dollars we're talking about. So, so at some point when they sign a contract with the Hilton Hotel, the the hotel fees, the money that the county is getting from the hotel, is supposed to pay for those loan payments. Is that yes. is that is that understand yes. correct? Okay. Right. And they also have a couple of other things built in, like you said, like they have tax increment financing coming from property taxes. But yes, it's supposed to generate enough money to pay the property tax, to pay off the bonds, and even have a reserve fund. Okay. So during the Ed Fitzgerald administration, before Armand Budish came in, there was a debate about whether or not the county should be on the hook for the debt service payments if, for some reason, the Hilton didn't make enough money, right? Right. And mm-hmm. there was one county council member who said, this is a bad idea. We should not be on the hook, right? Who was he? Right. That was Dave Greenspan, who's now in the state house. Uh, but he Republican was voted down. West Side. Right. He, Everybody so, else said, they, they acknowledged this was a risk, but they thought it was, <laughs> I've actually read these stories this morning, very conservatively um, Rest. Very yeah. Okay. Rest. Well, not so much because <laughs> right. now they faced it. Okay. So the previous administration signs a deal that that results in the county having to pay this money if for some reason the Hilton doesn't have it. But 
there's also was supposed to be a significant reserve fund right. that was built with all of this money. Has there been any discussion about where that money is? Not at all. And, you know, we're reading these old stories from 2014 and nobody is talking about this reserve fund. They just say we couldn't refinance. So we had to go to the general fund. I, okay. I don't know where the reserve fund is. All right. So let's deal with this bailout thing. The county keeps saying not a bailout, not a bailout. The, the county can say that they're not making a decision now to bail it out. But the decision was made to bail it out. They had the debate. Dave Greenspan said, we shouldn't do that, that mm -hmm. the Hilton should be on the hook. And the previous administration set it up so that if the Hilton doesn't have enough money, the county would step in to bail it out. That's what they're doing now. And I guess what the Buddhist administration is worried about is getting blamed. So let's just say it's not the Buddhist administration's fault. They're on the hook for this. I do question, though, why there's not more of a public discussion about other ways to do this. One, you can refinance this debt at some of the lowest interest rates probably in history to try and adjust it. Because the Hilton, if it's not making money now, it's probably not going to make any money for a while. The coronavirus isn't going away. And two, where's the reserve fund? I mean, they were very proud in discussing how they're going to have a significant reserve fund. Isn't that what a reserve fund is supposed to be for? Right. And they have said that since 2016, when it opened right before the RNC, they had made money, they'd paid off their debts, and they said they had extra. So where is that extra money? Okay. So let's count on the county council and county council president, Dan Brady, who stopped this thing from sailing through without a discussion to hold a hearing next week. Let's hope they ask these questions because whenever you're when you're in a cr fiscal crisis like this, the decision to take $8 million of the hard-earned taxpayers' money and put it into something like this without a further discussion about other options is kind of irresponsible. And, I mean, and hopefully- Yeah, we're, talk we're talking about a county that just laid off jail guards, that furloughed all their workers for two weeks. You know, this is not like a county that's flush with cash. What was so frustrating about this yesterday is- this 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 ire about the use of the word bailout instead of thinking about, you know, there's a lot of confusion about this. L let's put it all out there. Let's explain right. to everybody. Was... We considered all of these options. We thought about all of these things. This is the best we could come up with. There's been none of that. I went through the whole agenda and there wasn't even like an explanation in the agenda with the extra, you know, the hundreds of pages of agenda items where it laid out, here's our contract. Here's what we agreed to. Here's where the money's coming from. Here's the path. It, they, they should have been ready with the original contract for signed in 2014 and laid out how much money the, they're not even, they can't even tell us how much the hotel is down. They won't even tell us how they're losing money because they call that proprietary. There's just been no information out there on this. I want to give a big tip of the hat to Michelle Jarbo. She was the, uh, the real estate writer at the Plain Dealer back when this was going on. And her reporting is what allows us to understand <laughs> all of this today. And she did a wonderful job. She's over at Cranes Cleveland now. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many people has reporter Corey Schaefer now spoken with who were shot with non-lethal projectiles by police during the protest and riot in downtown Cleveland, May 30th. We talked last week a bit about the guy who was shot in the eye with a beanbag while he was just walking down the street, not near anybody, not aggressive at all, and he lost his eye. Now we have a couple of additional people who are saying they were shot for no reason, not being aggressive. Laura Johnson, what's that about? 
Yeah, this is just as crazy as as that poor 24-year-old, but at least the couple isn't permanently disabled because of it. Um, Emily Forsey and her partner, Ryan Jones, who have been to a lot of protests, um, they've been legal observers. They didn't they weren't legally observing this one, but they came down. They got away from the crowd. They were walking along the side of the Justice Center when they say an officer without warning raised his gun, pointed it directly at the couple and fired. They they like ducked. They, had, they ended up with welts and bruises and they have no idea why an officer shot them. And that was like 20 minutes after the earlier I wonder incident if with this John is Sanders. One guy. You know, I wonder if there's just one renegade guy who decided to take pot shots at people. We didn't hear a lot of this. I mean, in other cities, you saw lots and lots of this. We didn't have a lot of this. And the Cleveland police have gone through a ton of training to not do this kind of thing. You know, the video, the guy lost his eye. It's it's shocking because he is almost skipping down the street. I mean, there is nothing he's doing that says he is in any way aggressive. And he lost his eye. And if these people are describing it the same way, they're just walking down the street. They had their iPhones out. They were shooting some video and the guy raises his his gun and takes a shot. We don't know if it's a police officer or sheriff's deputy, but it's a uh, it's kind of terrifying. Emily said that her this quest to identify the offers has been incredibly frustrating, that she's not getting any help with it and no agency's taking responsibility for this. So although we did once we started asking questions about why there is no criminal investigation into the shooting of the guy who lost his eye. They suddenly announced there was a criminal investigation. So maybe they'll get to the bottom of it. But, you know, it's not like ballistics can tell you which gun was fired when you're shooting beanbags and rubber bullets. And one thing I thought was fascinating in Corey's story says that the police haven't even been able to substantiate their claims that some protesters breached the justice center and were trying to get people out of the jail, which is a story that came out after the protests. We didn't see any of it when we were covering them, but they claimed that people actually got inside the justice center. And now we don't even know if that's true. That was a claim by the police chief when he talked to our editorial board. And we, we were surprised because we hadn't heard it. And we, asked him for more detail about that and he reiterated it so because we had not heard that on day one you're right you're listening to this week in the cle is ohio still a battleground state in presidential politics and who's ahead right now donald trump or joe biden it seems like every election cycle because in the non-presidential years republicans have been winning the state house because of all the gerrymandering people start to pronounce us done and because donald trump won the state by eight percent or some percent In 2016, people have said we're done. And yet, every time we get to this point in the presidential race, Jane Cahoon, we're a battleground state. So are we a battleground state now? Yes, we are swinging back into battleground status. This poll that came out yesterday is the Quinnipiac University poll, which is a respected poll in presidential politics. It shows Donald Trump and Joe Biden essentially tied statistically, Biden with 46% and Trump with 45%. And the margin of error is like 2.9% plus but or minus. My, favor- my favorite part of this poll, though, is we don't like either of them. <laughs> this is true. They both had net unfavorability ratings, but Trump's was more, more unfavorable. Biden was 45% to 42% unfavorable, and Trump was 53 to 43% unfavorable. That's pretty sad when the two candidates running for president <laughs> are are kind of looked upon with scorn. There were some other very interesting things in the poll though. I mean people still love 
our recently departed health director, Amy Acton. She resigned and now has a different position, but she's still popular, right? The early signs that Ohio saluted what she was doing have not waned. Correct. I don't think they mentioned her by name in this poll, but 77% of the people approved of the way Governor Mike DeWine is handling the coronavirus situation. And he had a 75% approval rating, which is sky high. And 60% of the respondents said that he was on the right pace in, in lifting the coronavirus restrictions. That's interesting because, well, this was done before we started to see the increase in cases. Be interesting to see if that holds. There was also uh, part of the poll looked at the recent police debate. What would right. the finding there? There was so much interesting in this poll. Like there's, there's more on Trump and Biden too, but on the police matters, you know, 72% said they thought generally police in the state are doing a, a good job. Although don't think they're being held accountable for misconduct. 50% to 46 thought they were not being held accountable. Black Lives Matters is viewed favorably, um, 53% to 33%. And 64% of the respondents said discrimination against Black people is a serious problem. Yeah, I... the favorable rating of police confused me because most of the other questions kind of pointed in the other direction. And I just wonder if it was a wording issue in the poll that didn't really get to the heart. Yeah, I I think that one said like throughout the state. And then there was another question. What about police in your community? And the approval was even higher. I think it was something like 82 percent or something. All right. What else was remarkable? You mentioned there were some interesting things about the presidential. What else? Well, You know, we talked about the unfavorables, but as far as how they would handle various issues, Trump got, you know, negative ratings for his handling of the coronavirus, like it was uh, 54 to 43 between him and Biden. And then, but more people think he would do better on the economy than Biden, 53 to 43%. But Biden does much better on race relations, 54 to 38. And then on generally handling a crisis, Biden does better also, and also on, on healthcare, he does better. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the latest industry to sue Governor Mike DeWine to overturn his coronavirus restrictions because they are cutting into the revenue of Ohio businesses? Jane Cahoon, Lake County has been a hotbed of lawsuits for some reason for people that are trying to overturn restrictions. What's the latest? Yeah, I guess people really think they're they're going to get the best deal there in Lake County. So this is nine dance studios from across the state that have filed a lawsuit seeking to overturn the DeWine administration's coronavirus reopening restrictions. And they also want government compensation for being forced to close. This is a different, uh, this isn't the same group or the same group of lawyers who filed this one. These are, these are different. And uh, they, they, they're seeking a class action status. I keep seeing a, an image of Kevin Bacon appearing before a John Lithgow judge saying that you must allow the dance to go on. <laughs> well, this this lawsuit did seem a little different. For instance, they named Lance Himes, who's the interim Department of Health director, but they consistently misspell his name as Himes <laughs> instead. And then they 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 lifted. They, they, wait, they misspelled his name as Himes, H-I-N-E-S. 
Yeah, instead of Himes. H-I-M-E-S. Maybe they're thinking Gregory Himes. This is all about the dance, man. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I like that. Um, and then the other thing they did was they they purported to use a quote from a landmark Supreme Court case that was just it was debunked. It was something that was going around Facebook, and it's and it's not a real quote. You know, I get the feeling that at some point, Michael White is going to think, <laughs> you know what, the hell with y'all. Go ahead, get together, get <laughs> sick, go ahead and die. I mean, these are restrictions that he put together based on scientific information to try and keep people safe. And all these people keep saying, no, no, I, I, I want to get rid of these restrictions. I want to get together. And I don't know. It's at some point. I mean, it is a free will country. At some point, I guess people can do really dangerous and stupid things. We'll have to see how this one ends. This week in the CLE, where is longtime Cleveland chef Jonathan Sawyer doing his cooking these days after closing his restaurants and ending up in bankruptcy court? This is a big story before the coronavirus about the collapse of his Cleveland cooking empire, but he has landed, Laura Johnston. What's he doing? Yeah, he's going to move to the, uh, I think he's actually already moved to Chicago, and he's going to be the chef at the Four Seasons. So that's a big deal job. Um, he won't be a Clevelander anymore. They they had all sorts of restaurants here. Noodle Cat, Trentina. He had won the James Beard Award in 2015. So it is a loss for Cleveland, but obviously had some financial troubles here. Yeah, and his big one was the Greenhouse, Greenhouse Tavern, Tavern, which everybody loved. I'm a little bit surprised he couldn't find land here, but maybe maybe he was just so embarrassed about how things fell apart. I mean, they had, they had run up huge debt and... You know, we'd heard stories that employees were pretty upset that, that he had let things fall apart. So maybe he had to go to a new place to get a fresh start. Of course, you know, when when will the restaurant industry come roaring back? It's still very tentative because of the coronavirus. Uh, I, and the, I don't think the restaurant's open yet. I think they announced that they're coming back with a new a new plan soon. It's it's just it's funny because he's had all of these like name brand recognition restaurants in Cleveland. Like you said, like Greenhouse Tavern is probably the best well-known, but he even named Sawyer's after himself in the Van Aken district. And then the Four Seasons is obviously its own brand that is not going to be the, you know, Jonathan Sawyer's Four Seasons. You know, maybe he just wants a paycheck. Maybe he's tired of having to do all the bookkeeping. Obviously he had a few problems with that. So maybe having (laughs) a paycheck coming in is the way to go. It's this week in the CLE. Has the coronavirus canceled this year's Content Marketing World Convention, which normally brings people to Cleveland from across the globe? This is one of those those cool Cleveland stories This started, I don't even think, a decade ago, and it's become the international event for content marketing. But the coronavirus has done to it what it's done to so many other things. Laura Johnston, what the, what's the word? This is actually the 10th anniversary year of the content of content marketing world. And you're right. It is a huge deal. It brings about 4,000 people from around the world to it. Last year, I went to cover it and met someone from Australia. Uh, so for real, um, it brings about $3 million to the economy. But yes, it's going virtual this year. So the price is about half of what it would have cost to attend in person. It's still $1,000 if you want to get into everything. They're promising hundreds of seminars on Everything from, you know, how to write better emails to your customers to um, it's, it's everything that content marketing is. It's creating a relationship with your co- your customers. And so they, they think they can do it all online. You know, it's interesting that so many are doing this. Actually, our top workplaces program that every year 
we do. We had an event last year and today it, it's happening today. I think it's at three. Right. We're doing an online version and hundreds and hundreds of people are signed up. It's free. So anybody can sign up. But I just wonder if, if these are successful, if content marketing world is successful virtually, is that the future? Well, you know, it saves everybody a bundle of money. You don't have to travel. It's very bad for Cleveland because you lose all the hotel and restaurant business. But but for the companies that are that are looking at expense accounts, if this is an effective way of participating, do, you know, is this going to ultimately cut permanently into convention business? It may, but I cannot see that it's going to be equal the same thing. I mean, you cannot recreate those unplanned moments where you just run into someone or um, they have the entire um, atrium, well, not the atrium, but the um, actual convention center floor is full of companies trying to give you stuff and sell you stuff. And it's just, I mean, it's a, they're giving away ice cream. You can't do that on a computer. I, I, I do think you're losing some of the fun and the pizzazz and just the magic of having people together. They've always had really big speakers. They had Mindy Kaling last year, which was really exciting. And they had Tina Fey the year before. I mean, there's something to be said for being in the same room with these people and their magnetism. You can watch them on a screen anytime. So I, I don't think it's going to replace in-person events. I don't think it can. Okay. So we'll count you as a in-person vote. <laughs> this week in the CLE... Okay. Not bad, guys. Good podcast. Good debates, even in Chris's absence. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody for listening this week in this CLE. I'll be back tomorrow. 